If you would please take your Bibles and turn with me to Genesis chapter 1. As we uh, begin a series this morning on the book of Genesis, we'll be in Genesis chapter 1. Moses writes to us under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He says this, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless and void, and darkness was over the surface of the deep. And the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters. Then God said, Let there be light. And there was light. God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening and there was morning, one day. Then God said, Let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters. God made the expanse and separated the waters which were below the expanse from the waters which were above the expanse, and it was so. God called the expanse heaven, and there was evening and there was morning, a second day. Then God said, Let the waters below the heavens be gathered into one place, and let the dry land appear, and it was so. God called the dry land earth, and the gathering of the waters he called seas, and God saw that it was good. Then God said, Let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed and fruit trees on the earth, bearing fruit after their kind with seed in them, and it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed after their kind, and trees bearing fruit with seed in them after their kind. And God saw that it was good. There was evening and there was morning, a third day. Then God said, Let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens. Let them separate day from night. Let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years. And let them be for lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth. And it was so. God made the two great lights, the greater light to govern the day, and the lesser light to govern the night. He made the stars also. God placed them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth, and to govern the day and the night, and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. There was evening and there was morning. A fourth day. Then God said, Let the waters teem with swarms of living creatures, and let birds fly above the earth in the open expanse of the heavens. God created the great sea monsters and every living creature that moves, with which the waters swarmed after their kind, and every winged bird after its kind. And God saw that it was good. God blessed them, saying, Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the waters in the seas, and let the birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening, and there was morning, a fifth day. And then God said, Let the earth bring forth living creatures after their kind, cattle and creeping things, and beasts of the earth after their kind. And it was so. God made the beasts of the earth after their kind, and the cattle after their kind, and everything that creeps on the ground after its kind. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, 
according to our likeness. And let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on earth. Then God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the surface of all the earth and every tree which has fruit yielding seed. It shall be food for you and to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the sky and to everything that moves on the earth which has life. I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. God saw all that he had made. And behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning. The sixth day. Now this chapter that we have just read is both important and well known. It is instructive and it is controversial. The content of the chapter is affirmed wholeheartedly by some, outright denied by others, and it has been reinterpreted and massaged by some to make it fit better with the popular scientific paradigms of their day. But at the end of the day, the text remains, and we must receive it as it is given, inspired by the Holy Spirit and without error in all that it teaches. And what it teaches us here is how the creation of the world came to be. And so this morning we'll be, we'll be working through, through the text. Uh, we'll, we'll be actually spending uh, the bulk of our time early in the chapter and late in the chapter. But we'll be working through the text bit by bit and trying to draw out some implications as we go along. So let's start at the very beginning. Very good place to start. Verse 1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Now, on the one hand, this is, this is very simple. Along with John 3.16, or perhaps John 11.35, this is one of the first verses in the Bible which children commit to memory. It's so simple, yet it is so profound. In it, we find that there was a beginning. In other words, the order of things as we know it now has not always been. The stuff of which this earth or the planets or the solar system or the sun or the furthest star is made up of has not always existed. There was when it was not. Not that there was time before creation, for time itself was created by God in the beginning. As Augustine put it, with the motion of creatures, time began to run its course it is idle to look for time before creation, as if time can be found before time. We should therefore say that time began with creation, rather than that creation began with time. But both are from God, for from Him and through Him and in Him are all things. Even time itself was created by the eternal God. There was a beginning, and in that beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Prior to this, if indeed we can speak of something before time, the eternal God, the triune God, the great I Am, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit existed in completeness. God existed in all of His 
divine perfections and glory and was in need of nothing, in need of no one. Indeed, even Jesus our Lord prayed to the Father in John 17, 5 and said, Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself with the glory which I had with you before the world was. Before the world was, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit existed in fullness of glory. And yet the eternal God in his great wisdom decided to create the heavens and the earth. And that phrase there, the heavens and the earth, is a Hebrew way of saying all that exists. We would probably say the universe in our terms, but they apparently had no one word which would encapsulate all that we mean when we say the universe. And so the way that Moses expressed this is to say the heavens and the earth. And it's clear here that the universe is what is meant in as much as verse 16 mentions the creation of the stars. And thus when the Levites confessed the sin of their nation before the Lord in Nehemiah chapter 9, we find them addressing the Lord in Nehemiah 9, 6 in this way, when they say, you alone are the Lord, you have made the heavens, the heaven of heavens with all their hosts, the earth and all that is on it, the seas and all that is in them. You give life to all of them, and the heavenly host bows down before you. God created everything, everything that exists, and he made it out of nothing. Before creation, there was nothing other than God himself, the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And when there was nothing other than God himself, God spoke creation into existence. And thus David says in Psalm 33, verse 6, By the word of the Lord the heavens were made, and by his breath all the host, uh, by, by the breath of his mouth all their host. And again, Psalm 33, 9, For he spoke, and it was done. He commanded, and it stood fast. The creations of the heaven... The creation of the heavens and the earth out of nothing is what is uh, often called in the Latin ex nihilo, which means out of nothing. And this doctrine of creation ex nihilo, creation out of nothing, is essential to, to Christian orthodoxy because what this means, or what this would mean, if God did not create out of nothing, then that would mean that all that God did was to rearrange Stuff, stuff that was either created by someone else or stuff that was eternally existent and therefore co-eternal with God himself. And both of these are clearly unchristian ideas, even anti-Christian ways of thinking about the universe and clearly outside the bounds of what a Christian may believe. The writer to the Hebrews says in Hebrews 11.3, By faith we understand that the worlds were prepared by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things which are visible. Or as the King James translated that verse, not made out of things which do appear. And the point is not that the universe was made out of invisible stuff that pre-existed, but rather that it was not made out of anything at all that was pre-existent. Rather, all that is came into existence by the word of God. John Chrysostom paraphrased Hebrews 11.3 by saying, God made the things which are out of things which are not. He made all that is out of nothing. Again, Psalm 33. He spoke and it was done. He commanded 
and it stood fast. And the universal church has confessed this faith that God created all things ex nihilo in the words of the Nicene Constantinopolitan Creed where we say, I believe in one God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth and of all things visible and invisible. This is basic and essential to Christianity. And so we have here in verse 1 a beginning. We have a God who creates and we have a universe that is created out of nothing by the word of God. This, if you want to think of it in these terms, is the headline. And what follows, verse 2 through the end of the chapter, we see the specifics as to how this was done. Verse 2 makes it clear that though God brought the heavens and the earth into existence by speaking, the creation as we know it was not completed in a moment. There were six days of creation, not just one, there were six. And the original state of creation on that first day is described there in verse 2 in these ways. And in this way, the, the earth was formless and void and darkness was over the surface of the deep and the Spirit of God moving over the surface of the waters. And so when God first spoke creation into existence, it was not orderly. It was rather chaotic. And this was not the purpose for which the heavens and the earth were created. That word that is translated there as formless by the New American Standard or uh, also translated uh, without form could also be translated as a waste or uh, a waste place. And indeed, the word is translated that way in Isaiah 45, 18, where we are told, For thus says the Lord who created the heavens, He is the God who formed the earth and made it. He established it and did not create it a waste place but formed it to be inhabited. I am the Lord, and there is none else. And thus, what verse 2 describes to us is that creation at this initial point was in a state of, of emptiness and desolation. It was without form and void. And whatever this means exactly, it was raw material in the rawest possible form. The German Protestant reformer Wolfgang Capito speculated that it was something like an abyss filled with a confusion of undifferentiated water and mud in complete darkness which would unhinge any human mind that attempted to penetrate it. And the Spirit of God was there, moving over the surface of the waters. God was active in creation. This is not a deist universe, a universe that is created and just pitched out there. This is a universe that is created and sustained by a personal God. Again, to quote Wolfgang Capito, divine virtue from the Spirit of the Lord, warmly brooding over the inchoate, confused particles until his active presence reduces them to the most beautiful and perfect order at the conclusion of the six days' work. Or as the Apostle Peter put it in 2 Peter 3, 5, By the word of God, the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and by water. The Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters. And from that came the earth as we know it, as is told to us there in the rest of the chapter. And so by this point, the, the raw material was created, but it is a, a waste place of sorts 
as of yet. It was not what it was intended to be. And then, still on that first day of creation, the Lord said, let there be light. And there was light. Though the sun, the moon, and the stars were not yet created, they were created on day four, yet nevertheless the light was there. God created it, called it into being, saw that it was good, separated it from the darkness, called the light day and the darkness night. There's evening and morning on the first day of creation. Now, we ought to, we ought to pause here and take stock of a few of the implications from, from three, verses 3 through 5. First, first off, the designation of one day. The separation of light from darkness coupled with the language of evening and morning as a description of one day tips us off that the days spoken of here should be understood precisely as that, as days, what we think of as a day with an evening and a morning. And we see this refrain throughout the six days of creation, that there was evening and there was morning, second day, third day, fourth day, fifth day, a sixth day. These are, these are described to us as days, not ages, not years. And indeed, this is the direction toward which the scriptures themselves point our understanding. And thus, the, uh, the fourth commandment of the ten Exodus 20, we're told this, Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath of the Lord your God. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth and the sea and all that is in them and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. The point is that the pattern of working six days and resting on the seventh day is drawn from the Lord's own work and actions in creation. The six days of our work line up with the six days of the Lord's work. And the text gives us no indication that we're to understand these days as anything other than normal days with evening and morning. Now, the text, of course, doesn't specify 24 hours, but that's that's roughly what I'm assuming. I don't know with certainty that the world turned on its axis at the same speed that it does now, but I'm assuming something pretty close. Not that it turned once in a second, or not that it turned once in a year or once in a thousand years, but that it turned on its axis roughly more or less the same speed that it does now, with evenings and mornings comparable to what humanity has always known. Now, a second implication of verses 3 through 5 is that just as God can create light out of darkness, he also can do so without the usual means. When we think of created light, natural light, we think of sun, moon, stars, so forth. But they weren't created yet here on day one. Nevertheless, we're told that God created light, that he called it into existence, that he saw that it was good, that he separated it from the darkness. We're used to normal means of light, normal sources of light. We're kind of limited to those. But God is not limited to normal means and sources. He can do what he wants. He can create how he chooses. He is the Lord. As Paul puts it in Romans 4, he is the God who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. He is the omnipotent God. He can do as he pleases. And a third implication that is closely connected uh, with both of these is that 
in regard to the, the days of creation and the Lord creating as he chooses, is that we have to take the Lord at his word on these things and not get lost in speculation and asking questions of how or why. Rather, as, as one modern writer put it, in the matter of time and days of created work, the perspective of faith is not to speculate on how God could have done it, but to stand on what he tells us concerning his procedure, both temporally and materially. In other words, there's, there's no profit to be gained by asking, why didn't God create everything immediately, as fast as I can snap my fingers? Surely, God could have done that. Or why didn't God take millions of years to perform his creative work? These questions don't matter. God tells us what he did, and he tells us that these actions took course over a period of six days. The response of faith is to take the Lord at his word and to praise him for it. Now, let's keep moving then through these days of creation. And we'll probably be moving a little bit more quickly, as I kind of hinted earlier, through, through the middle section of the chapter. Verses 6 through 8, we have this uh, description of day 2 of creation, in which uh, there is the creation of the expanse or the, the firmament as the waters are separated from the waters. The expanse is what separates the, the waters below from the waters above. And God calls this expanse heaven. And in the, if you look through the subsequent usage in the chapter, it becomes clear that this expanse includes what we would call space or, or outer space, and as much as this is the place where the lights, the sun, the moon, and the stars are placed on the fourth day, verses 14 through 17, and it is also clear that the expanse includes what we would call the air or the sky, in as much as, uh, according to verse 20, this is where the birds fly above the earth. Now, obviously, one question here is what we are to make of this expression concerning the waters above the expanse. We get it that there are waters below the expanse. There are oceans, rivers, that kind of stuff below. What, what about the waters above the expanse? Now, some have postulated a a vapor canopy that existed over the earth in those days from creation to the days of Noah. While I would not consider myself a great expert in all the points of the debate, I would lean toward taking the waters above the expanse simply as in reference to the clouds, which contain water, from which rain comes and waters the earth. Deuteronomy 28.12, we read that the Lord will open for you his good storehouse, the heavens, and give rain to your land in its season. Similarly, Deuteronomy 11.11 speaks of Canaan drinking water from the rain of heaven. There's water in the clouds. It comes down to the earth. I think that could be a sufficient explanation of waters above, waters below. Uh, Calvin's opinion was that the waters here are meant such as the rude and unlearned may perceive. The assertion of some that they embrace by faith what they have read concerning the waters above the heavens, notwithstanding their ignorance respecting them, is not in accordance with the design of Moses. And truly, a longer inquiry into a matter open and manifest is superfluous. We see that the clouds are suspended in the air, which threaten to fall upon our heads, and yet leave us space to breathe. And 
this, this idea that the waters above the firmaments are simply, simply the clouds which contain water and give rain to the earth is also uh, the opinion of uh, older English commentators like Matthew Henry, John Gill, Matthew Poole, those, uh, those fellows. And so we have the, the creation of the, the expanse on day two, the firmament. Then on day three comes the gathering of the waters which are below, the gathering of the waters on the earth so that dry land appears. God called the dry land earth. He called the gathering of the waters the seas. And then on that dry land, on day three, sprouts the vegetation. God said, verse 11, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, and fruit trees on the earth, bearing fruit after their kind with seed in them. And that's what happened. And then day four comes the creation of lights in the expanse of the heavens, separating day and night, which were for signs and seasons and days and years. And at this point, the light which God had previously created is now dispensed by means of the sun, moon, and stars. The rotation of the earth on its axis marks a day, the earth revolving around the sun marks one year, and these bodies serving for signs and seasons could perhaps be indicative that the stars would be used for, for navigation, and perhaps that in the heavens would uh, appear signs of, of good and bad weather, and for the changing of the seasons, times of planting and harvest, and so on. Day five comes the creation of sea creatures, Birds after their kinds, seen in verses 23, or excuse me, 20 through 23. And then on day six is the peak. For on day six, the crown of all of God's creation was created. First, though, we find the creation of the land animals, cattle and creeping things and beasts of the field after their kind, and then the crown of all. Let's look to verses 26 through 28. Then God said, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. And let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them. God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And rule over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the sky, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. On day six, God created something special. Out of all that he had created, nothing was like this. He created man, mankind, male and female, in his own image. Which is to say, as one writer put it, that he created that man was created perfectly good, wise, just, holy, happy, and Lord of all other creatures. Now let's, let's observe several things here in regard to the creation of man. First, the importance of this great fact that God created man in his own image. This is what distinguishes mankind from the animals and also from the angels, that we alone Mankind were created in the image of God. This image includes original righteousness, uprightness. And so Solomon says in Ecclesiastes 7.29 that man was created upright. Now, Lord willing, we'll talk about the fall in a few weeks when we get to, to Genesis 3, and we'll talk about the, the change that was brought to the image of God in man. 
But in the beginning, Adam and Eve were created morally upright, not simply neutral, but actually holy and righteous. And thus, when, when Paul speaks about our renewal as believers, as being renewed in the image of God, he describes the, the new self in Ephesians 4.24 as being created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. Now, the point that I'm going for here is if this is what it means to be renewed into the image of God, being created in righteousness and holiness of the truth, then surely that's what it meant to be created in the image of God originally, to be created in righteousness and holiness, inclined toward truth. But, as we will see, man was created in in the image of God in such a way as to include the possibility of falling into sin which we know that he did. But even then, fallen men and women are still created in the image of God. And this is the clear implication of a text like Genesis 9-6, where the Lord pronounces the death penalty for murder, for in the image of God he made man, and also in a text like James 3-9, which demonstrates the incongruity of blessing God, while at the same time, with the same tongue, cursing men who've been made in the image of God. Of God. And this is why people, humanity, is unique. This is why we must love and honor other people, every other person in the world, in a way that is different from the way that we can love or honor any other creature in the world. Now I realize that's going to be special. And they can have an important place in our lives and in our hearts, but your dog, your cat, your salamander, gerbil, whatever, is not made in the image of God. But here's the thing. The annoying family member, the disgruntled neighbor, the church member with whom you may have trouble getting along, they're made in the image of God, and they need to be treated as such. And this certainly includes unborn persons as well person is a person no matter how small. They're created in the image of God, and we must treat all other persons as such. A second thing to note here is that God made them male and female, that this is God's design. It's God who determines who we are. It's God who determines our chromosomes and everything about us. And therefore, it is not our place to seek to alter or change ourselves or anyone else in this regard. Now, I realize that to many in our culture, it only seems right to experiment with drugs and surgery and attempt to change the sex or the gender of someone who wants to be different than they are. After all, people have been told that they can be whatever they want to be. And so now that pharmaceutical drugs and technology have advanced to the point that such changes can be facilitated, why not? I think the answer is here in Genesis 1, that God made them male and female. And while surgeries and hormone therapy might change some physical stuff, it can't actually change the person that God created. And there is a backlash that is already coming because of this kind of thing. And it takes the shape of teenagers and young adults who find out too late in regard to some of these things that there's no going back. It takes the shape of distraught women who will never give birth and of men who will never be able to father a child because of choices that they have made in this regard 
And also because the people closest to them did not love them enough to say no to the madness that modern technology has made possible. The people around them and the doctors doing their bidding gave them free reign, as it were, to destroy their bodies. God made them male and female. We should never attempt to doctor that. And I would just say that as the body of Christ, we need to be prepared to minister the grace of the gospel and the compassion of Christ to people who may come to us broken in body and in soul because of these kinds of things. We need to be ready to minister the balm of Gilead to them. We need to be able to minister the grace and forgiveness of Jesus to them and show them a better way that's laid out for us in the Word of God. Now, the third thing to notice here is the, the mandate to be fruitful and multiply. I think we can all acknowledge that this is a very tender and delicate subject, and so obviously we need to be careful here. We all understand that barrenness and childlessness can be a heavy burden and cross for those married couples who have desired children but have been providentially hindered from having children. And so obviously this is a very tender subject for some. We understand that ultimately it is the Lord who opens the womb and closes the womb and that human desire is secondary in this manner. But with all of that said, there, there is a mandate that is given here to Adam and Eve and by extension to their descendants to be fruitful and multiply. Obviously this is a command of a different sort, say, than the command to love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength. The command to love the Lord is binding upon all people at all times under any circumstances. The command to be fruitful and multiply is not that sort of command. As John Gill expressed it, if this is not an express command, as the Jews understand it, for marriage and procreation of children, it seems to be more than a bare permission. At least it is a direction and an advice to what was proper and convenient for the increase of mankind and for the filling of the earth with inhabitants, which was the end of its being made. And so, I'll grant, certainly there are exceptions to this command. Some individuals remain unmarried, whether through personal choice or through providential circumstances. And for those who have the gift of celibacy and contentment, the choice to remain single is a fully legitimate choice. Some married couples desire children but are providentially hindered from having them. So obviously there are exceptions to the mandate of verse 28. But at the same time, given the technological advances in birth control and so on, I think that it does need to be said that for a married couple to remain intentionally childless can, at the very least, potentially be an indication that priorities may possibly be skewed. And I realize there are exceptions with concerns for the health of the would-be parents, concerns for the potential health of the child, concerns for genetics, and so on. In my family, a story was passed down to me of my great-great-uncle who probably got married roughly 100 years ago, and he and his wife decided when they got married that they would not have children, and they did not. And the reason supposedly was that there was insanity on both sides of the family. Now, I can't say whether they did the right thing or not, but I would at least be open to allowing that there may be some circumstances in which a decision like that could potentially be legitimate. But what I do want to push back against is the idea of a couple getting married with absolutely zero intentions of having children at all, and the reason behind those zero intentions being the pursuit of ambition 
or the pursuit of pleasure. What I want to push back against is the idea of a couple getting married and saying, I don't want kids because they would interfere with my career. I want to get a PhD. I'm going to be working 70 hours a week so that I can have bukus of money. Or the mentality that says, I don't want kids because I want to be taking these really awesome vacations, and you can't take really awesome vacations when you're pushing a stroller and carrying a diaper bag. That, those, those kinds of examples could be expanded, but I think you see what I'm saying. This is what I'm wanting to, to push back against as contrary to the spirit of verse 28. And again, I grant there are certainly exceptions, but nevertheless, this mandate expresses what is right and natural and good in the sight of God. Solomon says that children are a gift of the Lord and the fruit of the womb is a reward. Psalm 127, verse 3. And even Paul counseled younger widows to get married and bear children. 1 Timothy 5, 14. There's something good and right about this. This is the creation mandate, to be fruitful and multiply. And fourth thing that we need to notice here is the dominion which God has given to mankind. And you see it there in the latter part of verse 28. Subdue it and rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth. The point is that mankind bearing God's image is the vice regent of God here on earth. We're to subdue the earth, to rule over it. Obviously, this needs to be done responsibly and with recognition that we are stewards of the earth, that ultimately the earth is the Lord's and all it contains. We want to be thoughtful and responsible stewards of the earth. But at the same time, we need to remember that the Lord actually put us here to be in charge. We're charged with subduing the earth and ruling over it. It is not the task of the rest of creation to subdue us and to rule over us. It is our task to subdue the earth and rule over it. As Gregory Nazianzen in the ancient church put it, Man is king of all upon the earth, subject to the king above. Or again, Isaiah 45, 18. The earth was made to be inhabited, not to be a waste place. And so on the one hand, we must not rule over the earth in such a way as to ruin it and destroy it. But on the other hand, we must not suppose that the earth is better off without mankind being present here at all. We must not suppose that the presence of mankind on the earth is a tragedy, which is best limited and confined and that the earth would be better off if we somehow abdicated our authority or were to sit passively on the side and let the other creatures do the governing. Not so. And so this mandate for dominion means that logging and quarrying and mining and farming are legitimate enterprises, and I could show you biblical approval for those things. They need to be carried on in thoughtful and responsible ways, but nevertheless, those are good and worthwhile things to be done. Gaining dominion over microbes and viruses through medical research and pharmaceutical development is a good thing and is now a part of subduing what is now a fallen earth, an earth that is under the curse. Gaining dominion over the produce of the ground and learning how to use it to sustain life is part of subduing the earth and is a good thing. I don't know all of the thought processes of your mind, but have have you ever sat down and wondered who was the first person who ever figured out how to make bread? We We take bread for granted, but it's been around for thousands of years, but someone, somewhere along the line, was the first to exercise dominion by 
experimenting enough to go from a stalk of wheat, grinding it up into flour, mixing the water, the yeast. I'm not a baker. You can, you can talk to my wife about those things. Somebody was the first to exercise dominion enough to get to the final product of a baked loaf of bread. There are several steps between growing a stalk of wheat and ending up with a loaf of bread on your dinner table. And this is good. This is exercising dominion. Lord willing, we'll speak more of the issue of human work in the world when we look at Genesis chapter 2 next week. Now this chapter ends with a summary statement in verse 31. God saw all that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning, the sixth day. God's creation, as created, was very good. And the theme of this goodness has been a running theme throughout the chapter, if you've observed it. Verse 4, God saw that the light was good. Verse 10, God saw that it was good. Likewise, verse 12, verse 18, verse 21, verse 25, God saw that it was good. And then at the very end, after creating the crown of his creation, God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. Creation was good. God created it good. He did not create it evil. The fact that there is evil in the world is not God's fault, but the fault of the human race. And even now, after the fall, though we ourselves are sinful and though the earth is under the curse, creation is still good, as Paul reaffirmed in 1 Timothy 4, 4 and 5, when he said that everything created by God is good. Nothing is to be rejected if it is received with gratitude, for it is sanctified by means of the word of God and prayer. And so what this means is that we can freely participate in the created order as God has designed it and can rejoice in the goodness of creation, giving thanks to God. If you want to know how to, create, uh, to participate in the created order in a way that is pleasing to God, then read the Bible. The instructions are here. And in participating in the created order in a way that is pleasing to God, we have the freedom, even the responsibility, to rejoice in the goodness of creation. There was a uh, great quote from the, the founder of, of Chick-fil-A, and he said that food is essential to life, therefore make it good. And I would simply add, give thanks to the Lord for it and rejoice in Him as you partake of it. The goodness of creation means that we can and should rejoice and give thanks for things like a beautiful sunset, a beautiful sunrise, a clear night when you can see the stars, a beautiful fall day when the leaves are red and yellow and the air is crisp. We need to think about the goodness of creation and its wonder and glory and then accordingly give praise to God. And so we read of the, the ungodly drunkards in Isaiah 5.12 of whom it is said, They do not pay attention to the deeds of the Lord nor did they consider the works of his hand. King David, on the other hand, did pay attention. He paid attention to the works of the Lord. And what did he say? He said it in Psalm 8. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth, who have displayed your splendor above the heavens. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained, what is man that you take thought of him, and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than God, and you crown him with glory and majesty. We need to look out at the creation, and in looking out at the creation, come to contemplate the Creator. And so we read in Isaiah 40, verse 26, 
Lift up your eyes on high and see who has created these stars, the one who leads forth their host by number. He calls them by name because of the greatness of his might and strength of his power. Not one of them is missing. The Dutch theologian Herman Witsius went so far as to say that we should hold a kind of conference with the creatures and examine each of them, respecting their admirable properties. And of course, the purpose of doing so is that our thoughts may ultimately be led to the Creator. This is what we find in Psalm 104, verse 24. O Lord, our Lord, how many are your works! In wisdom you have made them all. The earth is full of your possessions. Or in Psalm 104, verse 31. Let the glory of the Lord endure forever. Let the Lord be glad in his works. Psalm 139, 14. Wonderful are your works, O Lord. My soul knows it very well. Or as Basil the Great in the ancient church said it, let us glorify the adorable author of nature who has formed all things with consummate wisdom and skill. From the beauty of the things that are seen, let us learn his transcendent beauty. From the magnitude of these sensible and limited bodies, let us infer the infinite and immeasurable extent of his greatness and power, which no created understanding is able to comprehend. We should contemplate the creation and in that contemplation ultimately arrive at the worship and praise of Almighty God. And finally, this morning, we should allow the original creation that we've read about here in this chapter to point us toward the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is because all has been created by Him and for Him as we read this morning in our unison reading from Colossians chapter 1. Colossians 1.16, For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on the earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him or for him and for him. Or just think about John 1.3, All things came into being through him. And apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. He is the creator. It's been created for him. And he possesses all authority in heaven and on earth. He himself has come to earth, has lived a sinless life, and has died on the cross and rose again three days later to save sinners and thus to bring redemption to his fallen creation. And therefore we should repent of our sins and trust in him. And on that point, I think it is quite remarkable when we consider the parallels between what happened here in Genesis 1 at the creation of the heavens and the earth and what happens in the conversion of a sinner, in the new birth when we are recreated in Christ. Paul establishes the parallel for us in 2 Corinthians 4, 6, when he said, For God who said, Light shall shine out of darkness, is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. Indeed, he goes on to say in that very next chapter, 2 Corinthians 5, 17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things have passed away. Behold, new things have come. Or likewise, Ephesians 5, 8, For you were formerly darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Some have described the Lord's work in Genesis 1, going from the formlessness and the voidness and darkness of it up in verse 2 to the final picture at the end of day six by saying that what the Lord was doing there was that he was turning chaos into a cosmos, 
The Lord took the earth, which was formless and void, and had darkness over the surface of the waters. And by the end of those six days of creation, he had taken that chaos and organized it into a wonderful created order that was very good. And is this not like what happens in conversion? Outside of Christ, our lives are foolish and disobedient and deceived. We're enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful, hating one another. That's how Paul describes it in Titus 3.3. Sounds great, doesn't it? No, it's not. That is chaos personified in a human life. But when God says, let there be light, and shines into our dark hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ, darkness is driven out by the light. Our death in sin is replaced by life. And the chaos of our existence is made proper and orderly. Just think of that, that demon-possessed man described in the, in the Gospels who was living out in the tombs and crying out and gashing himself. And after Christ drove out the demons, this man is in his right mind, He's clothed, sitting there and talking with Jesus. You see the contrast between the chaos and the order that was brought by Jesus. The same thing happens in conversion. The chaos of our existence is changed and made orderly. Now that doesn't mean that all of our problems evaporate, but it does mean that our hopelessness is replaced with a living hope, a living confidence in God. It does mean that our purposelessness, apart from Christ, is replaced with purpose, purpose of living now for the glory of God. And it does mean that the chaos that we have brought on ourselves because of our sin is now forgiven and we begin a new life in Christ. And if any of you out there this morning is tired of the chaos of life outside of Christ, Jesus says to you this morning, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I am gentle and humble in heart. You'll find rest for your souls for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And if you have more questions about what it means to do that, to come to Jesus and to receive new life, find release from the chaos, you can talk to me or you can talk to another Christian whom you know here. We'd love to tell you more about this. But at the end of the day, this world is Christ. This world is Christ's. It was made for him. It was made by him. May God strengthen us all that we may love him and serve him as his creatures, as he has made us, for his glory. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for today. We thank you for all of your blessings to us. We thank you that you have made us. We thank you for the, the great gift of your creation, that everything created by you is good. Lord, we pray that you would help us to, to recognize that, that we are creatures, that we're not in charge, that you are the creator, that you are in charge, and that we would submit to you, that we would find mercy through Christ, restoration, new life, and new creation in him. We thank you for your great mercies to us. In Jesus' name, amen.